0: Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they are facing. I'm Joe Bamber from Evolution Proven Solutions, helping businesses connect with top tech talent, and today I'm your host. Today we're going to be discussing the topic of the future of engineering practices. I'm joined by Jeremy from ClearCycle, Dan from Booking.com. Damien from my 2 and Tolly from Cinch. Before we delve
1: deeper into the topic,
0: let's work our way around the room and just with some brief introductions. If I can start with yourself, Damien.
1: Yeah, I'm Damien Shields, I'm the co-founder and CTO of my and we help organizations implement and scale mentoring, um, mainly with enterprise clients where scaling is a bit more of an issue. Um, yeah, we help give that a little bit of the ROI of the mentoring programs, help Pump people through to make sure the relationship is more successful how with things like retention dei upskilling whole, whole range of areas where mentoring can help so great, great
2: thank you and jamie yeah i am I'm jamie um head of engineering head of software engineering at ClearCycle. cycle um is a company that gives companies access to the circular economy uh, in a simple way um and personally i've worked in engineering for about eight years software engineering for about eight years thank you and dan
3: uh, hi, I'm Dan Smart. I am an engineering manager of test within booking.com. So my day-to-day role is uh, mentoring and coaching the testers within my teams uh, in in testing best practices, but also relating the quality strategy to the developers and to the other engineering managers so that everybody's playing from the same playbook.
4: Billy, well, yeah, thank you. Last but not least, Tolly. Hello, uh, I'm Tolly. I'm currently head of engineering practice uh, at Cinch. It's a say, kind of uh, online second-hand car platform. I work with teams. Um, I'm kind of quite passionate about optimizing team workflows and just generally fostering collaborative work. Um, interesting, Dan mentioned testing. You'll probably hear me talking a lot about DevOps and observability and just any, any practice that helps teams deliver and operate software well.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And once again, thank you very much for taking part in today's podcast. So now we will all introduce I suppose we should move on to the topic and focus. So prior to this, we've all discussed, um, you know, topics around the future of engineering practices. Um, and what I do, I'll just go out to each of you and, and, and mention the topic that we discussed and the question we discussed and, you know, just to get everyone's thoughts with it really. So if you start with yourself, Damien, uh, one thing we discussed was how do things look moving forward within the industry with the introduction of, you know, platforms like ChatGPT. And what that will have, And um, if you just give me some context and the rest of the guys some context on that, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's a pretty open thing, really, um, like, and, and certainly something I don't have the answer to. Is, is you know what does the future look like? Um, you read a lot of uh, a lot of fear, I think, among developers w- worrying what their job's going to look like in you know the next twelve months or five years or you know however long we 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 just don't know. Um, but you know there's so many other areas that we can touch on with this I'm sure it's kind of just going to be an open ended conversation um, you know the whole question of just because we can should we and um, you know and how accurate it is where are we really is it a lot of you know is, is it a lot of marketing at the moment or is it as powerful as everyone says it's going to be um, yeah so it's really quite a broad topic I wanted to raise and, and just really speak to people and find out what people's opinion was on it and what they uh, see as you know from people you speak to what's their opinion on it as well no wrong answers i guess
0: <laughs> i'm gonna start i do one off jamie what are your thoughts on on the whole chat
2: gpt and the future of that moving forward yeah i mean I, i'm sure as, as probably everyone here has people I've, I've used it quite extensively been been playing with it used it in day-to-day work you know for, for inspiration ideas and help with code and it's, it's a bit scary it's a bit creepy kind of in, in its way you know And I, I know how it works you know it's a language model but it it feels so like real it's like someone's typing back to you so i think it's it's a really interesting um evolution it's evolved so quickly as well like six months ago we weren't talking about this and now it's just suddenly appeared out of nowhere so um yeah, I think there's a lot of issues around kind of legality. Like when's the copyright of the training data and all this kind of thing. The sustainability aspects, you know, it used a lot of power. The hardware would evolve very quickly. So what happens to that old hardware, that kind of stuff. Uh privacy aspects, like the data you, you put in prompts that it gives you data and then that gets used to future training and this kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot more issues around it, but yeah, I think it's a really interesting kind of path that we're going down technology wise. I think it's, it's, I think we'll see it as a tool. Similar to how you know an IDE with autocomplete was a tool for engineering. You know, 25 years ago, um, you know that wasn't a thing. But now nowadays we all expect it as developers. Um, an IDE with autocomplete. So, yeah, from from an engineering point of view, that's how I kind of see it. And there's also the product side, but I'll, I'll let I'll let someone
4: someone else jump in. I think I, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I work with Jamie, and uh, actually, um, we've we have some very um, very few moments in our lives where we kind of uh, get excited about something and get this, this double-edged sword of being excited, but also being afraid of, of something, but that, that in itself, uh, suggests something. Right. And when I started playing around with it, uh, my first, my first thought was I need to, and it's messaging me and find out, you know, what he thinks. Cause we worked together and we were kind of programming and things and my first question was, how much faster would we have got to where we went? We so we moved from Azure to AWS and we were learning AWS on the job. Had we had ChatGPT at the time to help us, um, rather than going through AWS documentation, which don't get me wrong can help you and you it, it can it can get it can move you along, but it's also quite tedious. If we could use ChatGPT to just uh, leap us forward, but at the same time giving us the understanding of it, that would be amazing. Um, so, yes, fear and excitement, but also I think I'm aligned to Jamie that I would still work with Jamie and pair with him, but I would still, you know, or or any Jamie, but I would still use ChatGPT to assist us to get our to to make our jobs better. And I think ultimately, it's gonna. Um, my my prediction is that it's gonna um just enhance our work rather than replace it. And definitely not saying that it'll replace software engineers.
0: I suppose a lot of people have a desire of relief now <laughs> and they'll still always it in a few years time. And uh, so really just the pose out what the
3: author's done. Well, I, I'm quite, I'm quite excited by it um, because it is something new uh, and something to play with. And we have already been playing with it. We've been writing test documents and, and quality plans with it already and been trying it out. So it is, it is neat. And hopefully it becomes a tool that we, we do embrace. Now, um, uh, I'm going to take my my quality hat off and put on my security hat um because I also volunteer with with OWASP Manchester and we've already seen a uh, new age of malware coming out of ChatGPT and, and and stuff like that so it is that's the fear side that that I've got is is how how our hackers going to be using it in the future as well because it uh, somebody did mention it is a double edged sword and and for what it can uh help and and harvest it can also harm so that's that's something that I'll be watching, uh, keeping my eye on the horizon for that as well. I think there's a big issue with um, the, the power it has as well. You think it should have, the way of searching, you
1: mentioned about AWS, you know, finding information about AWS. There traditionally would go on Google and would look at the first ten results or whatever it might be. ChatGPT kind of gives us it, its opinion of what it, think is, it thinks is the right answer and brings that across in a very confident, uh, you, you know, almost expert kind of way and to the point where we trust it and because it is very humanized very inclined to trust it as well i think i think that is okay for engineering um but when it comes to things like medicine asking a question on, on a medical thing you know if it, we we all know like going through different uh sources on the internet that they're, they're not always the best answers so I think for engineering, it's going to be a really helpful thing as we've all touched on there. Um, I think some of other some areas of life, it's, it's a little bit worrying where it, it does act as a, as a source of truth when it, it may not be. It's really just using information on the internet, which, um, you know, or historical data as with any machine learning model. Um, and that data set may not always be the most accurate or where we, just because we've historically done something a certain way doesn't mean that we... Going into if you want to do it that way. It'd be interesting to see how it evolves, I think, is it's, uh, it's just too early to say at the moment.
2: Yeah, I think it, as with I think with all the, the kind of artificial intelligence that's appeared in the last few years, one of the biggest issues with it is its inherent bias because you know we as as humans have inherent biases. You know, like for example, I Bing GPT chat so, GPT, but in Bing has the option to generate images. And you ask us to generate an image with a software developer in it, and they're all men, for example. So it's a pre-inherent bias built into this because it's based off existing training data. So it's an interesting challenge to try and to try and fix that. But you, yeah, you kind of like do you weigh do you weigh certain things? Do you try and fix things? But then is it truly based off the training data if you're doing that? So you know, I don't understand enough about how these things are trained to to kind of weigh in any more than that. But yeah, I just I define that as an interesting example. Um, so. Yeah,
4: but I guess, I guess as an employer and uh, for the future of software engineering, um, we're almost at a situation where we can't ignore it. And in fact, we should probably, um, advocate it almost like Jamie said earlier, as, as part of UID, um, with things like, Cope, um, GitHub Copilot or with generally chat GPT and, and help people understand how to use these tools or, or not only help, cause we don't know, right, it's more. Foster an environment where we can all learn how to use these tools safely, and that's that's what we do well. That's what we know how to do. We know how to help software engineers to to do their work safely and 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 well. So, I think the big the big question for companies now is, it, are they willing to uh, to accept that this is going to happen, or are they going to be too late uh, too late to the party? I guess and and leave their software engineers exposed. I can I can imagine a world where people. Start saying, well, I'll go to this other company that actually offers this out of the box, rather than um, say at this company that uh, I'm at a disadvantage. And so, uh, yeah, I think we're not at a stage to to judge where it's going to go yet, but we're definitely at a stage where we probably need to make a decision on whether we support it or
3: not.
1: And I think there was a letter, wasn't there, signed by quite a few people, um, saying that we should stop until we can regulate it more, which I think I mean, strange thing to do anyway. To think, to think that you know, stop the big companies, that the government will continue to do it is, a, is probably um, a bit altruistic. But um, it, it's interesting that you you raise, you know, we don't know where it's going. But you, you know, well, I, I don't think anyone knows what to do is, is the problem at this point. We we don't fully know the power. We don't know what the next version is going to be like. We don't know. We don't know where it's going.
3: Yeah, and it definitely sounds like if you if you start to regulate, it, then then that's kind of a fear response, and you just need to keep waiting in cautiously. Give give the engineering teams time to explore, do it safely. But I guess unfortunately, if if you're a startup, do you actually have the time and or investment to be looking into chat GPT? Or do you, will you be doing things the old way and, and will startups suffer because they have to move slower?
0: I'll be honest with you, so most just we really need I'll talk about that then. And... I think I think the honest answer is there's like a an air of excitement amongst it all. There's also a bit of fear, uh, and I suppose that's the beauty of it, really. I mean, the possibilities that you know moving forward is just unknown, and no doubt there'll be a few surprises along the way that we can uh, we'll all be talking about in the future. But um, no, thank you very much for raising that that uh, question, Damien. I think it's a great topic and something very sort of you know present at the moment. Um, Following on to yourself, um, Jamie, we did sort of discuss in detail a few different bits, but um, the sort of generic question that became was how will architecture within the sort of tech businesses evolve move forward? Obviously, we touch on chat GPT, that could, that could change things, but could you just give a little bit of context to,
2: to what you meant by that, please? Yeah, I mean, generally, I've, I mean, I've in, in the past eight, nine years, I've been doing code, it's evolved so much in that time alone that I think it's the, the rate of change especially when you bring uh, the factors such as ChatGPT gpt and other artificial intelligence tools to the surface it's the ability to, to change architecture has, has, has kind of accelerated um can I think of, of an example so for example when i when i first started my career it was you know .NET framework writing NPC apps which had a big database behind them and the company i worked for Used the, the biggest database they possibly could. There was no way they could have a bigger database and they still couldn't scale it because the licensing agreement and the software literally couldn't be scaled any further. They had a, a full rack machine to cope with that. And now, you know, I, I, I work with AWS now and I use DynamoDB and I can I, I can basically say that I could scale that app a lot higher than that single database could ever be just by myself as an engineer. If I wrote the code right, you know, I'm not that DynamoDB is not infinitely scalable. Um, Probably pretty close though. AWS do you a job with that. Um, so, you know, that's one example. So I think in terms of the way that it's changed, I've seen yeah, this move from these big monolithic apps to a serverless landscape. Um, so that's a big one for me. I think another thing I wanted to mention around that was that I think the way that architectures evolved has also meant that teams have changed. So for example. Uh, look at the time we had a cinch and, you know, our teams at cinch could, could have a full vertical slice of the entire end to end. So, you know, I worked in, in car finance, for example, and then we were able to do everything back end, front end infrastructure as a team, small team, seven or eight developers, and we could effectively ship our whole product ourselves in a, in a team. And there was no need to have, you know, operational team or, um, and that kind of stuff. You know it was a very very slim very very small team that could deliver an awful lot of very scalable infrastructure very quickly um
0: yeah. well thank you um tolly do you have anything to say on, on that i know um you know you we talked about similar things too
4: yeah absolutely i mean it's a great point so architecture is very very different to how when i started about 12 years ago um we did a lot of um architectural design uh, up front i not to say that that's um, wrong to do I think definitely should always be designing uh, things, but it was always, you know, the kind of the architect or the most experienced software engineer who knows how to design things. Whereas now we've, we've evolved that to software engineers to be able to design architecture to the point where I'd say that with infrastructure as code and serverless, we're at, I wouldn't be surprised that we, we get to the point where you, you do architecture as code. Um, whereby you're, you're, you're coding architectures explicitly rather than implicitly as we were doing previously. Um, and that will, that, that allows you to kind of think about the, um, the architecture as a sausage being as a team. And then you start thinking about the architecture and, you know, commerce law, how, what that, you know, how, how that gets created by the teams. And then you start thinking about the teams and their interactions and you get to see topology. So, all of these things have actually come together because it's enabled uh, because we, we and have been enabled because we've gone away from this idea that um, one person is to designer, I hand it over to a team who's going to deliver it. Because we were able to not care about buying servers anymore or provisioning VMs, we can just use the cloud. And whether we want it or not, that's changed the way we work uh, significantly. Um, and as Jamie said, you can do a lot, a lot quicker. Um so an architect as a role would probably want to enable the teams, give them the framework to make good decisions rather than make decisions for
0: them. Absolutely. Thank you. Danny, can you add to that at all or, you know, can you relate it back to your experiences? I know, um, you know, he's been a, obviously a founder of a startups. So he's probably decisions coming to it don't?
1: Yeah, but I've been working with that up now for, Know, 15 years or, or or so, maybe longer actually. But um without the changes in how infrastructure is being done, startups just wouldn't exist to the scale that, that they do today. Um I mean you've already touched on there, like if, if you had to design your infrastructure and bring in all the server racks, your startup costs are just incredible, you know. Now you go on AWS or Azure or whatever it is, you pay by the minute or by the hour, worst case scenario, and you can start building prototypes very easily. Again, you touched on there like my my role as a CPU within startups has uh, it evolved depending on the company size it starts out being you know the early developer and you're doing infrastructure you're doing back end, you're doing front end all very badly admittedly but then you start to hire teams that can come in and, and kind of improve it but the point is you can get the you can get a prototype out there uh very quickly very cheaply um a lot of these services will give you free credits as well because they want to obviously they want to drag you into there and their, their their ecosystem and and, and you know if you scale, then that's when they make their money back. But um it it's I mean it, it's absolutely fantastic. And I just don't think a lot of startups would exist nowadays without without these services.
3: And I mean it it even goes as far as to make things infinitely more testable. We can put in many more layers. We can move as a team faster. Uh, just the the amount of testing and the different testing types that we do at booking because we're going serverless and, and microservices and all that sort of stuff, we can we can make sure that we're producing a quality product almost as soon as we're starting to write the code and, and putting the different layers on at each step of the software development lifecycle. So it's just made things so much more easier to get things, a quality product, and to get it out the door.
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that's 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 a big point, actually, Dan, because we've noticed that a lot, that you, you end up actually focusing on production, focusing on the business and the business metrics, uh, because we don't have to focus on infrastructure, um, and we're able to kind of think about things that we weren't able to. So we, we talk about cognitive load a lot. So as as Damien said, you said, you know, CTO, you, probably, you write something, you get something out quickly, probably do everything badly, and that's because you've got a certain amount of cognitive load, right? But with the release of cognitive load that we've had with, um, with all the advancements of cloud and, and infrastructure as code, we, we've been able to think about product and I think it's not only startups, it's a lot of the established companies um, will be left behind if they don't um, pivot their approaches because they, they'll they end up um, just doing busy work uh, rather than actually provide value. And um, that's a bit of a big statement, but definitely something that I see in, in businesses a lot, unfortunately.
3: Well, yeah, and booking, we don't have these huge phases. We don't have these huge design phases or implementation phases because it's all, because we can move quickly. It's all these little micro phases to go with the microservices and then we can experiment, we can try things out and we can just get things out the door. And if they don't work, fix forward and try try the next thing, try the next thing. I think, uh, you
2: know, some of my recent experience has been that even though you've got all these, these well, you know, tools and services and infrastructures code, that kind of thing. You can still get it wrong and have slow releases and, and, you know, just, I, I think not take full advantage of the new architecture, ways of working infrastructures, code, et cetera, because I think the, the team architecture and the team structure has to change with the kind of change of, of, of working in, in general, you know, so if you still building things to release things in a year's time, I think you're not taking advantage of, of, of how modern software stacks can be built. And, you know, as, as Dan's mentioned, the you value know, booking.com, who was a, a very large organization can take full advantage of this new ways of working and, and start releasing things much quicker, making things more testable, more reliable and, you know, living in production seeing these things evolve. So I think it's possible to, it's possible to do it right. And it's possible to do it wrong, even though the technology is evolving so
4: it, in some ways it's, it's it's too quick how quickly you can get to production and we we don't we don't have time to actually um establish good patterns and good practices so i'd almost say that um the focus nowadays is more on good good engineering practices and and good defaults and having a golden path and having having ways of working that actually work for your organization it, it it's it, it's funny that, that that we talked about refactoring for most of our careers, like I, I'm from .NET background as well, we talked about refactoring things. Nowadays, we can probably refactor architectures a lot quicker than we could in the past. And, um, one of the things that I've seen uh, work really well, and, in Jamie's team was one of them, was actually teams being brave enough to throw away the code that they've written and start again, and that's Um, that's something that doesn't come from a, that comes from a generative culture. It doesn't come from a command and control culture. So the teams have all the, um, the tools that they have that they need to actually, to make these decisions and to, to make this transition. And most of the times I've seen that the reason why they don't do it is because they get, they, they get too comfortable with their code base. They, they get too attached to it and they don't feel like they have the agency to say, right, I'll throw this away and transition to something different that makes more sense.
0: No, that's great. I mean, um, that probably needs, you know, leads us very nicely on to what we discussed. And um, Tommy, I know we sort of wanted to, to find out, you know, will the industry adopt to um, serverless best approach? I know we about it then, but um, could you just give a bit of context behind that, please?
4: Yeah, just yesterday I was talking to some of my ex-colleagues about serverless and it seems like the silver bullet, like whatever conversation I have, the answer seems to be serverless. And we debated it for a bit and I kind of, we kind of came to the conclusion that we talked about DevOps like this for a while. We talked about infrastructure as code for a while, like this, this is, you know, you can do this, but you could also do these other approaches and ultimately they became the gold standard. So, um, th- my question is, um, am I living in a bit of a bubble or is serverless going to be a standard that, uh, you know, will be the go to, obviously you'll have alternatives, but would they be exceptions rather than the norm with the with the norm be you go serverless unless you have other
1: requirements
0: thank you would anyone let like start and then you'll know, give any context behind there damien can i you know get some context from yourself perhaps
1: yeah um i i, I think serverless is, is going to be i, I think it, it's still kind of in its infancy what we're saying about chat GPT earlier I, I think it's still evolving the thing is with serverless is it's It's still servers, right? It's still run by servers. It's just being managed for you instead. So it depends on what you want to do. Um, If you want to fall within a certain template, and you know, for a lot of things that does work. You know, if you want to fire up a database, or if you, I don't know, whatever service you want to think of, that's great. Um, But if you want to start to think outside of your box, I think as systems grow and production systems grow, and teams grow, and everything just becomes naturally more complex, and I think that's where serverless. Not in all cases, you know. I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff. things for and against it it starts to fall down a little bit so so i i tend to not go too much serverless but maybe that's just a bit of a control thing i I don't know it'd be good to get other people's opinions on it because that's kind of my my opinion is serverless i think is a it's a nice idea but it's not quite there yet for every scenario um but yeah that's just uh, an opinion (laughs)
2: No, thank you One about yourself, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's that's really interesting because I, I kind of, I've seen this move away from, well, I, I personally, in, in the roles that I've worked in, in the past two years, there's been a, a pretty much wholesale move away from, you know, monolithic and database-driven kind of architectures. Um, you know, we've seen containers became a huge thing. You know, container containerization in general is is, you know, the golden standard now. We very rarely see people talk about VMs. They'll talk about containers if they want to deploy something rather than a, a, a VM, in my experience anyway. Um, and, you know, I think serverless is, is very different to containerization in that with serverless, you tend, to, you tend to build things in a different way. With containerization, you're often building things in a similar way to kind of an older monolithic monolithic style. In its a container, that means you can more easily scale it. You can maybe you might have to use connection porting with databases and things like that. There's other challenges involved, but you know, it's a I, I see containerization to step up from monolithic infrastructure, but then so this is a completely different ballgame. You know, you have to think about things in a different way. Like I use the DynamoDB example quite often because I'm familiar with it, but for example, DynamoDB is not traditional SQL database, you can't just run a query on it and expect it to be to perform it you have to think about your your read access patterns much more than your write access patterns and and know how you're gonna build things so I think I think you have it's a very different way of working um and mm-hmm. the, the teams have to be uh fully bought into it and it's a bit of a step change in how you think um as well as you know changing the implementation wildly. Um so yeah that's that's my experience of it. Uh, did you have a one about yourself Dal?
3: Uh, I I think it's an interesting question, Um, and and even at Booking, we have on-prem servers, we have the containers, we have um, AWS native apps going up and down. uh, I don't know if if Booking would ever move to a truly serverless first approach, um, just because of the size and scale uh, of different things. Different products could absolutely be serverless and be spun up, spun down. I'd scaled uh, accordingly as well. So um, serverless first, I guess it's it's a definite maybe for me. Uh, it would have it, its time and place, and it depends on the product, depends on the team, really. I think just going back to I was just kind of thinking more as as people are speaking about why I I'm
1: heading towards serverless. And to be fair, it was a while ago when I really started to look at it, and I think probably one of the biggest things that put me off at the time was kind of the development tools that were available with it containerization you know you can run everything locally and you know you, you got a lot of control there um when it came to serverless it was just a little bit i don't know i found it difficult i'll do it within aws i think there's is it sam the serverless application model or, or, or whatever it is i can't remember um it was in an inf- in its infancy and i just found it really difficult to work with um or kind of know what was going on a lot of the time which is maybe the point of serverless but that i felt a little bit a little bit uneasy that so talking about, uh, Jamie, you mentioned there about the kind of the buy-in from the team, like it's probably a massive, a massive part of it. And if you've got that, then totally then, you know, and everyone wants to do that, then, you know, maybe that is the right use case.
4: Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely had that at Cinch. So it's, Cintra's entirely serverless doesn't, uh, doesn't have a single server VM um, or container in that sense. And, um, what was interesting is this, this, this grasp that soft engineers had of having to run things locally. And you have to get, can get comfortable with not running everything locally, and things will integrate in production, and that's where observability comes in. And uh, have to have good, you know, shift your attention right to production and see what's happening there, and that that's what gives you competence. Um There are some testing patterns that you can you can look at and and solve some 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 of those problems. And um, but nowadays with CDK um, in AWS and um silicate pipelines and things like that like that you can see that everything can be written in the same language for example so in, in our case everything is typescript and that's that's quite powerful and in terms of um serverless first uh i i think i guess i wonder whether you know for a long time we'd always said well you know containerize and put it somewhere but that somewhere is always you have to manage that somewhere even with kubernetes clusters you still need to manage that thing you need to have a team behind with serverless you don't need to manage it at all and yes there will be scale you know you get to a scaling threshold at some point for sure Uh, we've not reached that but we're a different business model right um i'm sure booking for example is is one where you know you'd need you need better management of servers at some point but I, I'm I don't know I don't know Joe what your what the audience of the podcast is but there's I, I'm sure that a large proportion of the the audience doesn't operate at the scale of booking um, and
0: it's a real mix um, which is quite interesting I know um, just from what you said there it sounds very much like it it works for some people work doesn't work for others Um I think that's the same with with the different s- scales as well like you said but um, it's definitely good to hear sort of everyone's you know different perspective on it from. No, will run through, you know, a larger team to still quite a relatively, you know, new company. So, no, that's great. Um, and f- finally, Dan, I know you, uh, we talked a lot about testing and, and should we have teams of all the testers and, and what the future of all the testers within a development team is? And um, if you just give a little bit of context behind that, that'd be great.
3: And um, Sure. Uh, and I think this this mirrors up with, with a lot of uh, everybody else's stories is we've talked about where we've come from and where we've ended up. So when I started testing, it was, it was in a test team. It was in a team of only testers, the developers dev, the testers tested. But now as we're, we're moving forward, we're moving into the future. We're moving into faster delivery of products that a, a solo team of testers really isn't going to be the fit in, in a lot of places. And that the tester should be set in the development team now. The question is, how many testers within that development team? Uh, at booking, uh, I'll use booking as as the model, as that's why uh, what I'm doing at the moment. We have one tester per development team, and they're they're not the one who clicks the button. They're acting more as a quality coach. They're relating the overarching quality strategy into the team. They're the ones that are uh, kind of boots on the ground, talking to the devs, influencing the devs. Uh, and being there in the mobs, being there in the pairs when the code is being written, interrogating is this the best that we can do is this a quality solution and and so then we're we're thinking about testing every step of the way we're we're thinking about testing and quality from that that first line of code and thinking testing first, thinking the quality uh, of the product first so we're we're not being the gatekeepers we're not signing things off to go out the door where they're encouraging the developers to think about testing and how do we test this better? And and thinking about all the all the extra layers of testing now that we've got microservices, because now we can do, we can be there when the unit tests are written. We can be there when the static analysis is run. We can be there, uh, you know, if we're talking microservices, uh, contract testing, integration testing, we can add all these layers in. And as part of each ticket we can be delivering, we, we can be helping the devs deliver the technical tests that maybe the testers don't have the background to be writing, but as the developers have the coding knowledge, we can leverage that knowledge to de- to deliver the tests as part of those tickets.
0: Oh, Thank you, I'm totally. Just following on for what Dan said there. Do you have anything to add or any comparisons from from your experience with that?
3: Yeah, I
4: mean, absolutely. I completely agree with with Dan on on, on the approach of being coaches and mentors. Uh, our experience was that um, we uh we gave in team topology speak, we gave as uh, teams um we gave them a domain and they they built uh, the software for that domain. They they, they built a solution for that domain, that problem space. And they are all software engineers, but we did um, plant a software engineer uh, with a bit of a um, an approach of automation. Um, so that included infrastructure as code, CD, uh, observability, monitoring. In fact, Jamie was one of those, and I was one of those as well. So he could probably speak to it quite a bit. Um, but the the interesting thing there is that they were coaches and enablers and mentors, rather than you go away and do this thing. They want to teach the software engineers to. To take in all this responsibility that we've given them, um, which is a lot to do. There's loads and loads of things that you could do, and I haven't even touched on testing. But um, so that was the model that we used. But the thing I'd definitely say is the testing is all about confidence of change, and we talk about quality of software, but ultimately, it's what happens in production that matters. But also how how much the code is changeable and it's 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 releasable and on all these things. So how we do it, whether we do it with people or automation, doesn't really matter. Uh, but it does start, I think, with making your software testable and that starts with architecture, goes back to a previous point. So does your architecture enable testability, especially in the microservices world that you were referring to there, Dan? And are we, you know, we've got the right boundaries, are we thinking about isolating the software? Um, so I think it all goes back to then ultimately teams and their boundaries and Conway's Law and and then enabling the people to uh, to know how to do these things well. and couple testing and testability with observability. Um, and one last thing on that is that it, it's, it's interesting because in the last four years, we, we don't have a single QA tester at Cinch. I think what we would need in hindsight is a coach, someone who'd coach them how to take good testing approaches, um, with things like contract testing.
0: Well, thank you. And Jeremy, you mentioned that because of your experience previously with at uh, Cinch, but um, you know, could you add a little bit in terms of, you know, your knowledge of the subject or, or your opinion of it?
3: Yeah.
2: I mean, so I think my, my experience is probably a bit different to your stand because I've worked in teams where you kind of throw work over the fence, you know, it's done development wise. So I throw it over the fence, um, that, yeah, that approach doesn't work well for me. Um, cause yeah. What happens when it comes back? What happens to all your, your carefully laid Gantt charts? um. So yeah, that approach I didn't really like. Um and then yeah, yeah, there were another extreme at cinch where we had really no one who was uh, they were, you know, no one had a test a job title if you like. I think to in I think to Tolly's point that uh, we could use a coach. I think we we I've seen the extreme of that where we had a very complex kind of um very complex part of the business when it came to car finance. And we we saw the pain of kind of losing confidence in that code base and you know, it got to the point where Someone very senior would come and say, you know, you're not doing releases and you've got to, you've got to slow down you've got to improve your testing. You've got to do all this kind of thing. And it's like, where's that balance? And I, I, I totally, I totally see the point of a coach more than a tester. You know, I'm not saying a tester wouldn't have helped in that case, for example, but you know, um, and I think, yeah, having someone on the team that can fight that corner for the quality and, and testing and that kind of thing. And we you tried to experiment with contract testing, but it was uh, the, the the time involved that spin that up initially at least it's very very heavy it's a lot of time that needs to be invested to, to get contract testing up and running and embedded across all the teams because if you don't do it across all the teams contract testing kind of loses the value um because you know if i if someone changes changes their changes their uh, interface changes their events but you don't they're not in the contract testing then then there was a very little point in having contract testing there in the first place so i think having that over overarching view of testing in in a business is something that we missed initially at cinch especially um so yeah for me that that that's what i mean we we could have done better i think um yeah at the moment the team i'm working in now we we're very very small it's just me and two other developers so we haven't got to the point where well we're not shipping anything to production yet so we haven't really got that experience yet but you know i'd like to spend more time on testing and, and 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 that kind of thing you know we're very good at unit testing but Beyond that, it's very difficult to, I think, justifying that to the business in terms of a business expense and time, essentially time is quite an interesting challenge as well. So, um, yeah. Oh, that was
0: great. And how about yourself, Damien? I, I was just testing, you know, how much made, is it involved in your day-to-day role at the moment and uh, where do you see, you know, the importance of it going?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think testing is very important. I'd probably echo a lot of what Jamie Said at the, at the back end of his, what he was saying there, um, you know, we're still a relatively small team and we've not really got the resources to have a dedicated um, testing. We set up unit tests, but they're admittedly more all, um, focused on security. So you know, back end endpoints, who can and cannot access them, and is they are coming back what you expect or, or right? In terms of front end, if something doesn't work, then, you know, we will most probably realise it internally. If not, we've got a good relationship with our clients, so that's that that helps massively um i i definitely don't think that developers should be testing their own code um I, I think that's trouble because you know how your code works and you do it you give it to someone else and they you know they'll they'll do the first thing that you know that wasn't designed to do um but i can't really I speak too much to, to be honest with you to, to testing unfortunately it's definitely something i want i see in our future and and, and something in a more structured way but yeah, just echoing what Jamie was saying there, it's difficult to to justify it. Um, you know, to to put all that sort of testing infrastructure in place beyond what we have at the moment, which is yeah, fairly basic. So you know, I am I'm, I'm actually really happy to hear about, you know, it, that it's not that throw it over the fence type of scenario, actually it's, it's more like quality. You know, we do code reviews as as well, so I guess there's an element of that. But um, yeah, we don't um we, we don't have sort of dedicated testers or quality for sure as people I'm, I'm learning a little bit here, so that's that's nice. Yeah. So I
4: think, I think what's interesting as well is that it all depends how you do changes is because you touched on, on pull requests there, Damon, and kind of code code reviews in our case, we, we encouraged quite a bit of trunk-based development and didn't work in all the teams, but in the teams that did do trunk-based development quite well, they, they tended to have really good testing as well, and because it's almost like a forcing function. They were actually search, which is the, the domain, that the pages that got the most traffic. And by knowing that every commit goes to production, or every you know every small batch at least, it'll end up, you have to test it well, you have to find ways to test it well, and you have to have good observability. So that was definitely something that we found, that if you put force and functions, you put guardrails, rules and people. End up taking responsibility of their software and finding ways to to deal with it. But just linking back to your 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 previous questions and previous topics, Joe, we talk about all this testing and architectures, and we're wondering whether ChatGPT would take away our jobs. I, you know, there's a lot of things to think about, but, and the, the thinking is done by software engineers in this case, and and the tools that they use, and the process that they use, and the practices that they have to to write and deliver software. Um, It just might change how we think about it, but we still need to verify our code unless, yeah. I I don't see a world assume that um, AI will replace all this.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the one thing I'm I'm grateful for is that automation hasn't caught up, and maybe it will with ChatGPT, that the one thing you can't automate is human intuition. So we'll always need that level of manual checks, even if we've automated the world away. I think I mentioned it earlier, but I think a few people be having a bit of a sigh of relief. The job's
0: going to stay for a while. But um, just touching on what you said at the very end, that I think um, the human element to any job's you know extremely important, isn't it? Um, and I'd like to think, and I'm optimistic that they won't get rid of that um, you know across across the world really, and but everywhere I think is probably the most important thing having I mean, having that human element to, to a job and uh, you know a personal sort of relationship with somebody. So. Um, well, I suppose to sort of to conclude those coming to the end of our time. But um, first of all, I just want to say a massive thank you again for, for taking the time to do this today. Um, that was today's Evolution Exchange podcast. Obviously, a massive thanks to all our guests for joining us today, and sharing their views with us. we would like to thank you for listening and hope you can join us again next time.